You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Topco. Business unusual. So, um, welcome to today's episode of uh, Topco's Business Unusual podcast. Today, I'm joined by Johan Mini. He is the Group Sales Director at Liberty. Um, welcome to Topco podcast, Johan. Hi, good morning, Ralph, and uh, yeah, thanks for hosting me. You look pretty relaxed for someone who's in sales. We live in this frantic world and all this disruption, and you're looking pretty cool and relaxed. <laughs> uh, are, are, you the, are you the duck swimming on the top, looking calm, uh, but paddling hard underneath? Well, maybe a little bit of that, but, uh, you know, I mean, maybe you just get people that love sales and people that uh, battle with it. I'm one of those that really like it a lot. And we, I mean, we were speaking earlier about your love for sales and your passion for sales. And it is unusual. I mean, there's a couple of unusual situations about you. You've got a law degree, mm-hmm. you've got a finance degree, and you're in sales. And sales is almost like a swear word in South Africa. Uh, yeah, you know, but maybe I'm just one of the few people that are not in denial because I think most businesses, uh, the most important function in their business is sales. So, um, and I think that, you know, more people need to learn to love sales because I think that, uh, well, maybe you can call it top line or whatever you want, but uh, no business will survive if they don't have the right sales into the right markets at the right price that provide the right value to the clients that they serve. And uh, I think that's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, and yeah, I mean, my legal degree has helped me um, to get to where I am. My finance degree obviously helps uh, on a daily basis to understand the commercials in the business, but it's also a good link to, um, to understanding how important it is that we get the top line into our business and to many other businesses around the globe. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's one of the things that intrigues me, you go to the US and they've almost got this big sales mm. culture and even mm. Europe, it's, it's uh, far more competitive. And I, and I think it's one of the, the opportunities in South Africa is how do we have more of a sales mindset? Like, how do we grow, you know, the training of salespeople and e- even the careers of people? Because if I look at successful entrepreneurs, and you read a lot of entrepreneur books, a yeah. lot of a lot of successful people have financial freedom from sales. Yeah, look, I think I mean, South Africa is a land of entrepreneurs. Uh, when when you think about the history of our of our country and you you just walk around in the streets of Johannesburg and Durban, Cape Town, there's a lot of entrepreneurs, okay, it's uh, it's the informal uh, part of our economy um, and we make deals every day. Um, sometimes we call it, you know, fancy names like commercial banking or something like that, but it's deal making, it's sales, you know, you're bringing two people together, the one wants to buy, the other one wants to sell, um, you put the two together, it's a sale that you make. Um, that's no different. And I think that, I think maybe the, the more mature countries in the world have figured that out. 
and they put some pride behind their salespeople. Um, but uh, South Africa has a way to go. I've grown up in sales uh, in a sense that um, my mother was an estate agent. I eventually ran my own business as an estate agent. Um, and many people, many of my clients said to me, but why are you not a lawyer? I said, well, I was a lawyer and I am a lawyer. So if you want me to do your conveyancing, I can do that for you. But I, I love selling houses because it makes me meet people and so forth. And it's absolutely great. So, yeah. I also love, I also love property. There's, there's something about property. I don't know what it is. I've got a couple of properties, but uh, also partly wealth creation as well. I don't know. Maybe it's, it's yeah. knowing you own a property. Or... I mean, look, I mean, again, across the world, um, many people think that they have really made it in life when after they have, um, um, after they own the property, after they, they got so far as to have a house, have an apartment or whatever the case may be. And I think that's, I think that's absolutely great. Uh, land and property over ages have uh, caused a lot of sorrow, but also a lot of freedom for many, for many people. For sure. And I think it's interesting your mum was a that property agent. So obviously that, that salesmanship came through. How did you get into becoming a lawyer, though? Because it's, it's like almost, is it opposites or, are, you know, is, has suits made sales and lawyers uh, funky and cool? Yeah, I don't know. I think that, again, you know, I think I mentioned this to you earlier that um, so, so a lawyer won't make it if they don't continue to sell their services. So if you're a conveyancer, then you have to really um, sell your skills as a conveyancer because there's many conveyances out there. If you're a doctor, you really have to um, sell yourself as a good doctor. And that's through word of mouth and so forth. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess as a youngster, I wanted to become a lawyer, uh, but not just anyone. I, I wanted to be a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. So it sounded, you know, like a good thing. It sounded very uh, funky at the time. Um, so I studied law, become law. Uh, I did my LB after that, and after that, and during that time, I also did an honours in, in corporate finance. You know, so it's it's all the right things, you know, and um, and I eventually ended up um, doing that, um, and and I, I had my first merger and acquisition, and uh, it was tough for me. I, I wouldn't say I hated it, but I didn't like it at all. It was reams of paper that I had to work through, and. Um, uh, I figured out that, you know, there's, there's something in law that I like a lot more, and that is the people side of it. Um, so I sort of specialized in succession planning after that. And that led me into, into insurance and personal financial planning. There you go. My dad had a saying, he said, nothing happens between two people until someone gets excited. And so, you know, if you're doing paperwork all day and you're not excited, it, it, <laughs> it's hard to get excited uh, on that. Yeah, it's also for courses. We need we need people that get excited about spreadsheets and paperwork as well. <laughs> for sure. So, I mean, how hard was that to pivot from that dream of being this mergers and acquisitions? Because I I see this correlation all the time. I see successful people at some stage in their life had it all planned out. They're going to study. They're going to work. Their career is all planned out, and suddenly something happens and they see an opportunity and they grab it quickly and they cascade into doing something else and become very successful like yourself. 
Yeah, look, I think that I mean that I, I guess that happened to me. So I I, I didn't I didn't like that that pure law uh, slant with the finance attached to it. It, it. it was okay if I had to do that for the rest of my life. I, I guess, like many people, I, I I could I could do that. But I just joined Liberty, and and I was in the litigation department, and um um. And uh, well, in the legal department, we we I was assigned, you know, to litigation at that point in time, and uh, and my dad became really ill, and um, and and it was a, a very short illness, and he passed away uh, from cancer. And I I administered his estate as a as a good lawyer uh, and as somebody that specialised in succession. And what happened was I realised that he only had one life policy. And I, I sort of figured out, you know, similar, very, I guess very similar to what Donald Gordon did when he, when he started Liberty. I mean, his dad retired for 28 Rand where he was earning 200 Rand before retirement. And he said, well, what happened here? You know, how many South Africans are in that position? And I asked myself the same question. I said, so how many of my dad, you know, are out there? And, um, and then I realized what we do, um, the purpose of Liberty linked with me to say that, you know, we try to help people to achieve financial freedom. And that means different things for different people. And I thought that I'm sure that my dad would have wanted something different for, for, for my mother. And um, I, at that point in time, started to teach uh, uh, people about personal financial planning. And I realized that, you know, if I can multiply that and get to so many more people than just, you know, the people in the class, and I guess it became a bit of a mission without, you know, getting on a whole hobby horse about, you know, all sorts of things. And that led me to motivate, to be motivated every day to help our financial advisors and independent financial advisors out there to reach as many people in South Africa to help them on their journey towards financial freedom. Ralph, and I guess, you know, it's never changed for me in my 23, 24 years that I've been in this industry. It's funny you say that because I think I was about 23, 24 and I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm. And my dad's an entrepreneur. And so he taught me all about sales and business, but not really about financial management. Yeah. Um, and so he would start businesses and move countries and start another business. And it was wonderful. And like, he's obviously very creative, but I never learned those parts about the financial intelligence and wealth creation. And so I also felt like when I read that book, I was like, oh, my word, why, why don't more people know this? Why aren't they teaching this in schools? Why aren't we? We're working hard every day. For what? Why, why are we working hard for? Um, and so there needs to be a reason. So, so, I mean, it touches people, right? This is, this is important stuff. I mean, what, what, what books did you find or when, when you're yeah. teaching financial? Look, I, I, I think back then I read, I've read pretty much all of them, you know, anything from the law of succession and how you can do inter intergenerational wealth and, and, and plan for it so that, so that you can do it in the most effective way that, uh, you know, you're not being hampered by all the red tape in terms of, uh, you know, the high court and so forth. And then on the personal financial planning stuff, it was, again, you know, we, we, we had lots of reading material back then, but I guess... I guess at a different level, the, the one book that, uh, that I always remember and, and that helped me to see things through a different lens was, um, uh, was a book called Presence by um, 
by, by and, a guy that. Uh, what's there's that? Another, there's another lady that wrote a book called Presence as well. Anne, yeah, go. I, I um, yeah, and 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 um, and and it's uh, it's Peter Singy, and um, and and he wrote it with a couple of others. And um, but 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 the book was all about how do we live in today, today's moment, instead of you know a lot of people think about yesterday, they think about tomorrow, but being present and really understand where you are in your life and so forth. And, and I think a lot of what we do is connecting people to say, okay, we, we're going to talk about the future, but you need to talk about the future in, in today's context. You know, you are who you are. And, um, and, and you are made who you are by your past, but you, you don't have to, as you, as you look forward, you don't have to be, you know, the same person as your dad or your mother or whatever, whatever you, you, you think about it. So when you get to, to, to the real nub of what, what financial advisors do every single day, it isn't about doing the financial planning per se. It's really about understanding people. It's understanding where they find themselves in their lives every, every single day. And then you work around that and you try to really create a better future. Um, and we have this thing recently that, that, that we developed. I think it's absolutely awesome. So it's all linked to, at the end of the day, you know, um, getting people to, to become financially free. But that's helping people to become the author of their own life stories, mm-hmm. you know. And that author of your own life story isn't always about your retirement, or your life cover. Mm. It's really mm. about you as a person. Mm. And, and, and I guess that's why, you know, I really love so much about what we do because mm. it, is, um, it goes to the heart of who people are and what they mm. aspire to be. Um, everybody has dreams. Everybody has aspirations. And then so many people just never realize them. Mm. Um, and I guess, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is to help people to do that to realize their dreams and their aspirations. And is that, is that, this, is that this, the product you're talking about? Is that Stash? Well, Stash, stash is, a, I mean, it's a really funky thing, you know. So Stash <laughs> is, uh, it's, really, it's really aimed at the millennials, but I see that, you yeah. know, a lot of exes and baby boomers are also using it because it's easy to use. You link up, you, you link your credit card, and you start to Stash, and we make it fun for people. So... But again, I mean, it's, it's, uh, so financial services per se is quite boring. Let's face it, like, like most yeah. industries, it's, it's not, you know, it's not architecture or anything like that or art. Yeah. It is quite boring, but Stash is really one of the ways that we're trying to make savings a fun event. Um, yeah. And it is savings. I mean, you, it started out by taking your, ca- your, your change and just stashing it away. But now it's, you know, you stash when the sun shines, you have, we have the 10 cent challenge, which I think is fantastic. Every day you start with 10 cents, the next day, 20 cents, then 30 cents. And I think if you, if you add your 10 cents every day in a year, you're going to save like 7,000 rand. Um, and it's just so like it's, compounding, compounding the whole time. Yeah, yeah. And it's difficult to do that, you know. And so many people, <laughs> when I speak to them, they say, oh, they missed their stash 10, 10 cent challenge. You know, they're on day 262. Well, sorry, you can't just make it up. You have to start it all, all over again. But savings is discipline. Um, yep. and it's a I was going to say that. Of, it's a fun yeah. way of teaching people discipline. Yeah, I'm reading two books. One, one I've read a couple of times. It's The Mind of a Millionaire. And yeah. the other one is The Habits of Billionaires. And I didn't know this, but there's, there's American dollar billionaires. There's one 
billionaire in every 10,000 millionaires. And so I've been reading about the different habits. And one of the key habits, one of the top six habits is discipline. And obviously savings another, right? And putting away in a disciplined amount of money for your finance, your future. But one of the other things that intrigued me is, is a book, Money, by um, Anthony Robbins, Tony Robbins. Mm. He wrote that book, Money. And he talked about yeah. that the, the millionaires use insurance as an instrument for wealth. Yes. Is, is, yeah, that so, something, is that something hard to get across, do you think? Yeah, it the, is. The, because, because you're in sales, because it's a financial services product, that people see the, the challenge, or that, you know, what are you getting out of it versus they, they should be doing it for themselves anyway? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, many, many years ago, um, I was still working in another company. It, it's an emotional thing, you know. So, um, look, I, I, I think that it's still an aspiration for many people to become a millionaire. And it still has a nice ring to it and so forth. Um, but again, it's those dreams and aspirations that I'm talking about, about people. And may, many times they don't have it for themselves, but they have it for their children, you know. So, mm-hmm. if you position it that how do we make Johnny a millionaire? Um, you know, how do we make Tabisa a millionaire? And you start to say, okay, well, and, and, and we do this often when people um, come out of varsity, they start their first job. And what do people typically do when they get their first paycheck? Okay, they go and have a party. And then the second thing is they go and buy a car, an expensive car. And if you prove to people, if you show them <clears throat> that instead of buying, you know, the 10,000 rand a month car and you put away, you know, 5,000, 6,000, 10,000 rand a month. Mm. Um, in five years' time, <clears throat> sorry, in five years' time, when other people bought the fancy car, now has a devalued um, asset that they're, going mm. to, that they're going to sell for, I don't know, about half the value. Mm. Um, you want that or do you want to be a millionaire? Because mm. you can actually become a millionaire in seven years. Yeah. Um, or you can then sell your first car and then add to your installment in order to buy your second car. And I think it's, it's those, I wouldn't say techniques, but it's those stories, those true stories that we're trying to help people to understand. Look, Ralph, in many instances, people still go and buy the car. Okay. So, <clears throat> and, uh, I'm, and it's, I'm it's probably also, one of those people. And it's also something that, uh, you know, we, we often talk to the regulator about because when it comes to f- personal financial affairs, people are not always rational, you know, mm. but, but humans are not rational. That's why I love the book of Peter Singer so much is, you know, it's emotional beings that we're talking about. Um, that's why you have buyers and you have sellers and the one person will sell the stock and the other one will buy the same stock. The one sees no value, the other one sees a lot of value. I mean, that's behavioral finance for you. So mm. our advisors often use very good behavioral finance stories to help people to make the right decisions and to become, you know, financially responsible. But, you know, Donald Gordon, he's, he's really been a, an extraordinary man in the way that he built Liberty. He said there were two things in his life that, that he firmly believes in. The first one is time in the market. So you need long-term investing. And the second one is compound interest. Mm-hmm. And when you look at those two things and you combine them over time, mm-hmm. It is really, really powerful. Mm. And part of what we do is to help, and that's Stash. You know, that's, that's the principle of Stash is 
to get those principles across in a funky way, in a fun way, that mm. people also enjoy what they do and not just, you know, do it because we tell them to do so. Yeah, I like that rule of 70 as well. So, you know, if you've got something growing at 1% per annum, mm. it's going to take 70 years to double its value. If you've got something growing at 10% per annum, it's going to take seven years, like seven property. Years. But if it's like, you know, whatever, um, 15%, I think it's just on about four and a half years. So it really just scales the higher the rate of interest as well, that compounding suddenly yeah. makes a big, big impact as well. And, and suddenly you, in 35 years, if you're putting money away, it can really make a big dent in terms of uh, an unreal amount of investment, right? Yeah, we, we you know, in, in a simple way, you know, you talk about the rule of 70. We, we use that even today by just, you know, helping people to understand the, the time value of money. Um, and it, these days we use seven years, but in the good old days when interest rates were easily, you know, at 15, 20%, and we projected at 12 and 15 we would say at 12%, it takes you five years to double your money. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and then you can also, you know, use the reverse to say if something costs you five rand today, you know, just double it over, you know, 35 years is going to cost you so much. So you need to also then save in order to, it's an easy way. And, and then also talk to people about real things. So, you know, instead of, instead of, you know, buying two cappuccinos a day, you can, you can have a retirement annuity of, you know, a thousand or two thousand rand. Um, and then it becomes real for people. And that's why, you know, technology is absolutely fantastic um, to do the research and and and. But this human connection, you know, of one person talking to another person about their own personal circumstances, um, maybe in a world where virtual reality becomes you know, real, you can sort of choose your avatar and the tone of voice and all those things. And then, then they can tell these stories to you. But there is something about, you know, a person sitting across from you and just listening to your stories and relay it back in your terms. And in the process, help you to understand your own personal financial situation. So, yeah, I mean, things have moved along, right? I mean, there's a couple of things that, that you're talking around which is this whole automation and organizations just using technology and automation and funnels mm. to sell insurance products and to sell things. Um, and then you've got organizations like yourself that still believe in that human touch. Um, and, and I mean, you know, we were talking earlier about this, this sort of proposed um, acquisition of Standard Bank to Liberty and, and why? Why is that happening? They already own a significant amount of liberty um and we we're talking about standing going to like a platform business and and how did that relate to to liberty yeah look it's um i guess that the relationship with standard bank and liberty goes back to 1974 um when there was a, a deal done between liberty or donald gordon back then and, and standard bank and and sort of when when i joined the business in the in the late 90s um that relationship was already strong, um, but it was a more a corporate relationship. So we tried to retailize it back then and say, you know, uh, how do we jointly reach more clients um, through what today we call bank assurance? Um, and a lot of plans were put in place. And it's a highly successful agreement between Standard Bank and, and, and Liberty at this point in time. 
And through that, I certainly believe, and again, you know, we're having lots of discussions with the regulators on an ongoing basis because the regulator really looks at it from a client's perspective and say, how do we get the best outcome for the client? Um, uh, but, but, but sometimes the absolutely best outcome for clients, when you put the commercial lens on top of it, you know, it, it starts to make the equation, you know, very, very difficult. So, so we try to find a balance between the commercial outcome for all stakeholders and the right outcome for the client. But bank insurance does that, where, um, where in many instances, you, your reach of clients is so, so much more. So for the past sort of 20, 25 years, there's a very, very good, solid working relationship between Standard Bank and Liberty at various and different levels. And one of them is obviously when the Gordon family then sold the 40, 54% to, to Standard Bank, and they became a majority shareholder. But to a large degree, let Liberty, you know, continue to, to be a completely independent company other than, you know, through the bank assurance agreement. But I guess it's, it's a little bit like at some point in time, you know, um, we, if, if you were best friends to then do a transaction, it's almost natural. It becomes, it becomes the logical thing to do. And to a large degree, I think this is what's happened between the two companies. You know, I, I guess it was, so either you stay that way, which is not optimal, it's not bad, but it's not optimal. Or on the other hand, you can say, well, let's dispose of all of it um, and com become completely independent, um, which I, I guess nobody really wanted. And um, if, you, if, you, if you look at the benefits that I think both the organizations will get from it, uh, it sort of makes sense that at some point in time, this was the natural thing to happen. I think the market also was waiting for it. Um, Will it be a difficult merger? I mean, obviously, we're still in the process of getting all the regulatory approval and so forth. But, uh, but, but, but I guess it, it does create the largest financial services group, powerhouse, as we call it, uh, on the African continent. I think what it does for Liberty per se is certainly um, on the back of the standard bank client base into Africa, you can become, you know, instead of just spreading financial freedom to South Africans, you can now do it to mm -hmm. Africans. And, mm -hmm. and there's a link between what we do and, and the bank's uh, purpose also, and that is, you know, Africa's our home, we drive her growth. I mean, there's something about that, you know, um, where a lot of companies go to Europe and America and so forth. Africa's our continent. So there's also an emotional connection there, which I think is, you know, it's, it's, it's inspirational and it's aspirational. To do business in Africa is not for sissies. Um, yeah. <laughs> to do business is not for sissies. <laughs> then in Africa is not for sissies. Then insurance is not for sissies. So, I mean, yep. sales is not for sissies either, by the way. Um, <laughs> so, so I mean, we were talking earlier, and it was also intriguing for me that um, it, it's not just that, though. So there's the growth opportunity of going to Africa and and taking on the back of Standard Bank's, you know, um, I suppose, distribution. Mm. And, you know, I, I had a, a podcast with Michael Jordan and, and he was really clear, like he was saying, you know, you've got the innovators, or the startups that are innovating versus the incumbents, the bigger organizations. And really what they're seeing is, is, is you know, the startups are looking for distribution versus the um the legacy businesses looking for innovation. And I suppose the, the other thing that we saw is a lot of startups, when they partner with a big financial institution or a bank, 
they've got about an 85% of success just because of the distribution. So you guys are almost guaranteed of, of this international success just by going with them. But also, you know, you have certain attributes as well that Standard Bank is looking at, right? Yeah, look, uh, Michael Jordan is 100% right. And obviously, you know, coming from a large bank with a massive distribution going into, you know, uh, a startup, a fintech, um, <clears throat> you have to fight that fight in a different way. Um, but it is true, you know, asset managers, you get very clever asset managers and they just battle because you need assets, you know, uh, under management and you only get that when you have distribution. But distribution is expensive. Um, uh, I know because I run the distribution at Liberty. It's an expensive organization, you know, so, but you get benefits from it. And then obviously when you go to the scale of Standard Bank, it is much more. But what, 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 what are the things that, that, that I think are complementary? Standard Bank's a bank. So that means that many clients interact transactionally with the bank every single day. Um, Liberty, on the other hand, is, is not some, you, you know, you, you don't trans, we don't transact with our clients every day. Um, we, we, we transact with them really when they are in desperate need of, of, of help, um, when something horrible happened to them, or, you know, um, when it's mostly a planning process until such time when, when, when something, when life happens to them. And then we act fast and we act proficiently and so forth. But the bank does it every day. So it's much more of a transactional business um, that clients need. On our side, it's much more, um, I spoke about it uh, you know, earlier, it's much more of an emotional business where we understand our clients at a very deep level. We understand, again, their dreams, their aspirations, their children, you know, where they come from, their grandchildren and so forth. And I've got lovely stories that, that we can relay about, you know, when somebody passed on, uh, let's say the husband passed on, that eventually that's the financial advisor that walked this journey with the widow, that, uh, that walks the aisle with the daughter when she gets married, because it's just such a close working relationship. And I think that, you know, that's what we can bring to the bank is to say, take the transactional relationship that you have with the clients and really make it something that is different, um, that is much more deep, in, 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 in talking to your clients about. So when I think of a house, you know, so you, it's a mortgage loan. That's the product that you sell. But that's not really what you sell, you know. So it's much more than that. So how, how can you sit with a client and envisage this house, you know, and then help them through all the pitfalls? It's, it's going from the transactional stuff to the much more emotional stuff. So... Um, and, and I think, you know, it's that relationship that we can bring to the bank. And then obviously the bank can help us to transact with our clients a lot more through banking and banking services. For sure. Yeah, that's really good. It's, uh, it's really, really interesting to hear what you're saying. Um, some of the things that have been intriguing me is obviously we've had an economic recession. Now we've had COVID, which is sort of, you know, the rules have changed. We knew the rules were changing anyway in sales. Yeah. How has that affected you? Because you've got this t technology disruption. Now you've got mm. this disruption where, you you know, the old way of engaging and, and getting that emotional context with the customer has changed. How is that changing with the bank, with the, with the Liberty? Yeah, look, I, I, I think, I mean, just, just on COVID, I mean, that, that 
we, we had to adapt very quickly, Rolf, you know. So, um, again, you know, making emotional connections with people is at the heart of what we do. Now you have to do that over Zoom. Mm. So a lot of things that we, that we taught people of how to read body language and stuff like that, sometimes you were staring at their halo, you know, and you, you've got no chance, you know. So, <laughs> so now you have to listen a lot more carefully. You have to really, you know, get people to put on their camera um, and so forth. And, and that was tough, but, it, you know, the, the world didn't have a choice and, 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 we, and we, 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 we got to a different solution quite quickly. But, but I must be honest, you know, so what COVID also did was to make people a lot more aware of their own fragility. Mm. The fact that... Have more know, empathy for people as well, yeah, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that, yeah. you know, so... You know the thing about insurance is a grudge purchase. Nobody wants it, but you sort of yeah. know that you need it, and therefore yeah. you don't really want to meet with your insurance advisor. But you know, okay, everybody says that you should, and so so you don't really want to buy it, but eventually you do. What COVID did was to make people aware of the fact that you know this is not something that's not a nice to have. That's an essential. It is something that you really need. So <clears throat> what we saw was um, uh, online insurance was always it was it, it, it never it never got off the ground and then all of a sudden it just went through the roof yeah um look time will tell when when the claims come in whether whether that was the right thing because you know it's one thing issuing things online it's a completely different thing going through a whole underwriting process and really understand yeah. the health of a client because those yeah. things you will then do when the client passed on yeah um but that, that just indicated to us that this is now something that people are buying. It's not just yeah. something that you have to go and sell. Yeah. But it is still, that is a transaction. It's a need that you fulfill through a transactional way. And we certainly mm -hmm. believe that that's not the way that we want to do it, continue yeah. to do it. There's a place for that, without yeah. a doubt. But there's certainly also the, the whole planning process behind it and understanding not just the need, the once-off need of life cover, but everything yeah. else that goes around it, you know. So, and and again, so I think from an insurance perspective, everything that the that Standard Bank has, we've already explored, and that's in the in the bank assurance agreement. But it is now taking it to a different level, you know, with the bank to say, okay, the things that Liberty used to do in the past, and the things that the bank used to do in the past, if you put the complementary skills together. I don't know. You never know what uh, what will come out of that. Um, I, th I think it has an opportunity to really create a different banking experience and a completely different insurance and financial planning experience. Sure. And obviously, we, as as different executives, we haven't spoken too much about this because it would be a little bit premature to do so. Um, yeah. But without a doubt, I think that, you know, there, there are other companies that, that, that is exploring this. Um, um, we have it already. We've got the two large organizations. If we put them together, we just need to find the propositions by packaging certain things together. For sure. So I know that um, Standard Bank uses Salesforce. Do you guys mm. also use Salesforce as a tool? Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, and I think that... Um, uh, I can brag a little bit here, but I mean, we, <laughs> we when, when we looked at Salesforce, again, I think that, you know, um, like 
most companies look at Salesforce and say, okay, how, how can I make my admin burden better? And how can I make my CRM better and so forth? And, and they look at it from the inside out. Um, how can we save costs uh, by, you know, having one view of the client and so forth. We did a lot of research because it's an expensive exercise. It's an American mm -hmm. company that you're going to, you know, contract with and, and you really need Paying to get dollars. Yeah, you need to get your bank for back. So we had a good look at the winners and the losers out there and, and, and we figured out that, you know, not too, many, not too many people actually look at this from a client perspective, um, from the outside in. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so we approached from a client perspective and very soon we realized that, you know, in getting to the client, we need to do something for the financial advisor. So we developed what we call the, 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 the Liberty Financial Advisor workbench. And the workbench is literally that, you know, when you think of a workbench, you've got all the tools and you can build something, you can do something with it. Um, and, 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 uh, and the past year we've been building that um, and we've launched it about three months ago. And at least everything that you need to know, you know, about a client. And then over time, you know, what Salesforce does, it, it, it gives you certain capabilities to enhance the data. I mean, everybody's in the data mm -hmm. play these days. To enhance the data, to, to really understand a client just more intimately. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, is our financial advice also input data. And I think that's the difference here, is that all the things that they have in their heads, about the client and so forth, we encourage them to put it on the database. Um, and that enriches because the algorithms in Salesforce is simply amazing. And it's mm. got a module that they call Einstein and Einstein then mm. gives you, you know, it predicts certain things for you and so forth. Mm. So our aim is absolutely to create a platform that enhances the client experience um, and almost be there for the client where the client says, I wanted to phone you about this. It's interesting that you phoned me today about that because I was thinking the whole week about it, but I just didn't get mm. to you. I'm coming back to sales, all right? Mm. We have in South Africa a 33 trillion rand deficit, okay, gap, insurance gap. In our lifetimes, we'll never be able to, you know, to close that gap, but that doesn't mean it's not there. You know, so mm. if you look at the insurance that is there versus the insurance that's needed, it is just... It's, it's just too big. Um, <clears throat> it's even bigger in Africa. It's not as big in America and some of the other first world countries. But that's our job. That's our moral obligation to the people of South Africa to say, you know, we will help you to, to, to make that gap smaller and smaller and smaller. And we need to do it in such a way, we want to do it in such a way that it's not just a, a grudge purchase. It's a fun and funky exercise. And that's mm -hmm. why we say, Let's enable you to become the author of your own life story. You write your story, okay? We'll edit it, we'll help you, we'll guide you and so forth. But it's your story. It's not our story, you know? So part of what our financial advisors need to get over themselves is that they're not, they are the expert, but they can't continue to act like the experts, okay? The client needs to take the responsibility and really become, you know, become that author. So oh, I'm really excited funny. about that. And, and Salesforce is going to help us you know, you know, do that versus all the other things that Salesforce normally do for, for organizations. And I mean, you've got a big, a big sales team of uh, consultants. What, what, what have you found as the best sales book that you've read or program that you've uh, <coughs> sent your guys on? Um, look, over years it changed. Okay, so um, I think... Um, I think the best sales program that, that, that we could 
help our guys sort of 10 years ago was consultative sales. I said 10, maybe 20 years ago, consultative sales. And that is really you consult your client on, on needs and so forth. Um, we, we've transformed that, okay? Currently, we're in a space where, and it's fascinating, again, you know, it's, um, it's gone from financial planning to life planning to transitional planning. And, you know, and all the gurus in the world will tell you, the basics are still the same. Yeah, but just not names. Yeah, it, but, <laughs> but, 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 and, and, and then the latest one is sort of what they call trustworthy selling. Um, you know, and, and, and what we've done at Liberty, and again, you know, it's, it's inspired by ourselves. It's not, you know, so we read a lot and so forth. And, and, and I guess, you know, there's many good books that you can, that you can read. But, but um, we've developed this thing that we call the advice continuum. So um, in the past, I guess sales was a function and you had to make targets. Mm. And then sales became a bit of a business in a sense that, you know, it's a, it's, you realize it's an expensive part of your business. So now you need to watch your expenses, the revenue, the type of products that you sell and so forth. Um, but the moment we shifted our, our views from internally to externally and really figuring out what is it that clients sometimes mm. want, but also then if they don't know that they want it, what they need, mm. Um, they need advice. They need advice at the, and advice is not always financial advice. So our, sh our shift in focus is really towards, um, towards the trusting part between ourselves and the clients in giving advice. Um, and, and, and then the next phase would be, you know, once that's in place, is really to empower our clients to do all of this themselves with the guidance of our advisors. So if you... If you ask me if there's any specific book, um, I guess consultative sales in the past used to be really, really good. It's a, it's a course that we used to run at Liberty for many, many years, and it helps you to engage clients at the right level. But at this point in time, it's trustworthy selling. And it goes to, you can't even start to begin to talk sales if you don't form a really good trust relationship with your, with your client. And, we know how our clients trust these days. You know, they check out on LinkedIn, they do it on Facebook, then they go to Twitter. Um, and they're researching you, you're not researching them. Yeah, exactly. You know, so long before they meet you, they know that they want to meet you. Okay, yeah. which is very different to the past. You know, in the past, I got a referral and then I'll phone you and so forth. I think a lot of those things are, they're still relevant, but they're starting to fast become outdated. Sure. Yeah, is so that educate and help is the... Uh, a sort of new mantra, right? Is how do we educate and help and solve their pain problems before they even know they've got one? Yeah, and, and experience, you know? So um, how do you get people to, and I mean, Ralph, again, you know, when we, when we had a look at uh, what we call Life 2.0, which is, you know, when people go into the second phase of their lives after their formal employment, um, there's some really cool technology that we want to, and it's not for now, it's in the future, want to deploy to help people experience something like retirement. Okay. Clever. When, when you experience Alzheimer's, there's no doubt in your mind that you need cover against Alzheimer's. When you experience Parkinson's, and there's at MIT in the, in the US, they have this suit, you put on the suit, and then it works with gravity, and you start to feel what it feels like as an 80-year-old or 90-year-old or 100-year-old, you know? So um, 
because then, then, then it's not an emotional game that you play with your clients. It's real. It's, it's, it's the experience. And, and so, so we're really shifting towards an experience um, economy for, for our clients. And, and for that, you need trust. You know, they need to tell you about the experience that they want. But sometimes it's deep emotional. You know? It goes back to know. their childhood days and so forth. If you don't have that trust, then I'm not sure you're going to make it in the future in sales. Sure, trust is it. It was so great speaking to you, Johan. It was uh, really good. I, I, I think that uh, this living to 120 and mm. 150 and all these things is, we can go into religion even. Um, <laughs> it's like, how, how, how do things change? How do you plan for retirement? And then if you're going to live to 120, these are things that we've got to really consider and get into because it's real, right? It's going to be within our lifetime. The people we know are going to be 120, 130 or older. Yeah, and, and you know that the trick there is, so if you live to 100, you know, it's not, that, it's not the fact that you're going to live to 100. You will because, you know, medical advancement is going to just take you there. What we need to figure out is how people will live because, you know, you're going to either live comfortably, okay, you're going to, you're going to enjoy living to 100 or you're going to absolutely hate it because in the past you may have had an illness for, I don't know, two or three years. Now that's going to be with you for 20 years, you know. So it's much more, and again, you know, it's much more than just that, okay, we're going to put in place a, a lump sum of money for you that you can, that you can have, but it's, it's more than that. It's, you know, what do you need to eat? What do you need to do? How do you need to exercise? So it's all those things, Ralph, that, you know, when we talk about, you know, the experience for clients post that sort of retirement. And that's exciting, you know, that's a little bit away from life insurance per se. Um, but I maintain, you know, it still comes back to, you know, we do all these things so that we can engage clients, that we can put something on the top line, you know. It's the motivation of why we do things. And I think that successful companies, the motivation for them is different from the ones that just look at the commercial outcome. Yeah, especially and, when you've been going so long, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. And Liberty has this rich and, and, and this wonderful history of the purpose of the company started with, with the question, you know, and, and, and the founding principles are always, and I say this so often to people, you know, our founding principles, it's universal, but we help people to, we, we, we work with people, we, we, we help people to remind them about the humanity, okay, so they're humans. The second thing is we help people live a legacy, all right? So people want other people to remember them, you know, for certain things. But also because they're going to live longer, they're going to live a legacy. And they're not just going to leave a legacy. And then, you know, my favorite is liberty is not just our name. It's what we do. And you think about that. The liberation is much more than just financial freedom. You know, it's also what's in your head and how you think about a lot of these things. And for many people, that's all we do. And I, I love that, you know, so. Yeah, it comes across. <laughs> thanks, thanks, for, thanks for listening to me. I mean, I get passionate about these things. <laughs> Pleasure. So it was, it was great having you on board. Good luck with the Standard Bank uh, deal and your Thank you. expansion into the rest of Africa. And we'll be <laughs> watching. Yeah, cool. Yeah, thanks. Um, I hope it's all going to be good, be good on your side as well. Thanks, Ralph. Thank you, Johan. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.